Good Thursday afternoon, Facebook viewers. I hope everyone is doing well today. I know some of you may also be viewing this via our church web stream, and I really appreciate the uh, comments that we've received over the past week, those of you who tuned in last Wednesday and are with us this afternoon. We may have to adjust the schedule, as I shared last week, depending on when the recording is available, but I'm glad that you have chosen to be with us this afternoon. As we jump into chapter 9 of Matthew, the the story is about halfway over. When you look at what goes on in chapter 8 and chapter 9, you find that at the point we pick up today, a dividing point, if you will. You find a place where Jesus is starting to face a little bit of opposition, a little bit of animosity because of who he is and the things that he is capable of doing, the claims that he is making. And certainly the crowd's responses are going a long way to build some of that animosity against Jesus. So as you take a moment to turn to Matthew chapter 9, I'd like to invite us into the Lord's presence for a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, for the gift of this day, we pause and we give you thanks and praise. We are grateful, Lord, for your holy word. As we dive into the riches of its words this afternoon, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to your Holy Spirit as we see and read and hear things that are maybe quite familiar to us. May we discover them through new lenses. May we find something in the stories that maybe we've neglected in the past, or maybe we just haven't thought about it from that particular angle in some time. Lord, bless all who are viewing, those who will view a little bit later on. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned in my opening remarks just a second ago, this point in the story, it becomes a, a transition. It becomes a shift from some of the optimism that the people have been experiencing with regard to Jesus, but also we know in life from our own personal experiences, when things are going really well, there are going to be those negative Nancys. There are going to be those naysayers who try to do whatever they can to discount and discredit the work that we're trying to do. It may be totally innocent, but it might be making a difference in the world in a positive way. And there are some who, regardless of what we do, are going to have their criticisms. And that seems to be the case here in Jesus' ministry. It becomes a, a turning point where people are going from being amazed and overwhelmed by what he is capable of doing to, okay, we need to do something to stop all of this because this Jesus is really making the religious establishment look really bad at this particular point. Would you join with me as we begin in chapter 9 at verse 1? If you remember last week, this verse in a way concludes the story from last week where Jesus had gone to the area of the Gadarenes. He had cast demons out of two individuals. The demons fled into the pigs. The pigs jumped off the cliff and into the Sea of Galilee. And when the report got back to the townspeople, they promptly asked Jesus to leave their region. His welcome was pretty much worn out at that stage. And as we begin at verse 1, it says, after getting into a boat, he crossed the sea and came to his own town. 
His own town, if you'll remember from some of our previous studies, if you've been a part of that. If not, you can pull up the notes that are available on our church website. But we talked about how Capernaum essentially became the base of operations, if you will, for Jesus' life and ministry. Most of what Jesus said and did took place around the Sea of Galilee, especially as relates to that small town of Capernaum. If you have your handouts, if you receive those via email or have been able to download those from the web, you will notice a picture on the first page of the chapter 9 handouts that gives you a picture of the remains, if you will, of the synagogue there at Capernaum. And it was also in that general vicinity that it was believed that Peter and his residents also existed. So Jesus has moved from predominantly Gentile territory and move back to the predominantly Jewish area, the people who are familiar with him the most, where family would have been, close friends, people who are already quite familiar with the work that Jesus has been doing, his teaching, his miracles, his proclamations, and so forth. And it's there that the story resumes. And you would assume... Of course, assuming does get us in trouble a lot of times. One would assume that going back to friendly territory, going back to a place where you are best known, would be warm and open and receptive. It's kind of like for me to go back to my home church. Sometimes I'll just go back with my dad if he has something to do, and I'll just walk the hallways, and I'll look at the pictures and remember the classrooms. It's a, a warm memory from my childhood, especially when when I go to the time that I was wrestling with God's call to vocational ministry. Most of the time when we go back to those familiar places, there are good feelings, not just on our behalf, but certainly those people we see that we interact with. They look at us, they smile at us, they pat us on the back, they encourage us because they remember us when we were coming along. At this particular stage in the story, some of that feeling is going to shift because as Jesus continues his good work, there's going to be the development, if you will, of envy. And I think that's one of the best ways to describe the tensions that are going to surface through not only the remainder of this chapter, but also they set the stage for where the remainder of Matthew goes because we know that the opposition is going to escalate. These religious leaders are going to do everything in their power to destroy Jesus, not just bring an end to the ministry, but their hatred, their frustration with Jesus escalates to the point that they begin to plot ways to kill him. As we continue the story in chapter 9, verse 2, it tells us, And just then, no sooner had Jesus arrived back into his hometown that some people were carrying a paralyzed man who was lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the scribes said to themselves, well, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, why do you think evil within your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? 
but so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. At that point, the man stood up and went to his home. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. There are so many things about this story that have always stood out to me. It's one of the unusual miracle stories. It seems like a pretty straightforward healing, but when you look at all of the things that are unfolding in just those few short verses, there are a lot of things that pop out. One thing that's always stood out to me about the story is the fact that there were men, there were good friends of a certain paralytic who were carrying him to meet Jesus. I recall a sermon some years ago, and it was nothing that I had not probably heard or read before, but I guess it was how this particular pastor presented the message. He talked about this story And one of the major emphases of the text of that particular sermon was the fact of these friends acting as what the pastor called stretcher bearers. And he focused on the fact how important stretcher bearers are, not only to this story, but to all of our lives. Now, we may not be a people in need of some kind of physical healing, But we can think of times when men and women and young people have come alongside of us. They have believed in us. They have supported us. They have given us the encouragement that we most needed at that particular stage in life to keep us moving forward. I can look back over the course of my faith journey and I can give you countless men and women from my childhood, from various ministry contexts over the years who have touched my lives, touched my life, and it's not because they literally carried me on a bed or a mat, but it was because of their presence. Sometimes it was nothing that they said, nothing that they did in particular. It was the fact that they were present, reminding me that I was not alone in that particular season of life. But then again, there have been those words of wisdom that I've received and countless prayers over the years that gave me the support, especially when I was in a low time in life. You know, that's one thing that we must commend about these gentlemen, the fact that Jesus looked at the faith of the friends. Now, don't get me wrong. Faith is something that we all must act upon individually. We all must make our own personal profession of faith. No one else can accept Christ on our behalf. But if you think about times in life when maybe our individual faith is a little bit weak, sometimes we do have to lean on the faith and the strength that others possess I can think about that with my parents, my wife, various church members over the years. There were times I just didn't see any way out of a situation. There were times when I was just really down and out, frustrated, depressed by some circumstances, and my faith was, as Jesus says throughout the Scriptures, a little faith. 
One day it was very strong, but then because of various circumstances, that faith began to dwindle just a little bit as it faced tests and pressures from external life events. So here we find the friends because of their faith, knowing that Jesus was capable of doing something about the paralyzed man's condition. They were willing to do the work, take the extra effort, step up to the plate, however we want to describe that, and take this man to where Jesus was because they knew that Jesus had exactly what this man had need of. That should be one of our primary goals when we think about the living of our faith in this world. Yes, it's important for us individually, but as we walk the talk, as we live what we profess on a regular basis, it should point people toward Christ. That is one of the most important things that we can be about, sisters and brothers, in this walk of faith, is making sure that all that we do, all that we say, everything that we are practicing and that we stand for as the Christian community is pointing people not to us, it shouldn't be drawing special attention to our abilities and our grand accomplishments, but it should point others to Christ. We looked at that a little bit back in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that we should let our light so shine before others that they will see our good deeds but not give us praise and glory, but rather offer the praise and the glory to our Heavenly Father. Now, I don't know about you, but one thing that's always been unusual about this text is what Jesus said in response to those friends and their faith. He looked down at the paralytic and said, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but typically when I go to see a physician, it's for a physical or something that I'm concerned about, an ache or a pain here, I go to receive professional medical attention. I don't go to my doctor for my doctor to walk in the room and say, hey Kelly, how's it going? Uh, oh, by the way, your sins are forgiven today. I can't help but wonder what did the paralytic think in that particular moment? Did he think, oh wow, thanks Jesus. Did the friends look at one another puzzled and say, boy, that was, that was a waste of time. We brought him all the way here to meet Jesus, and that's all Jesus is able to provide? One thing that's important to realize in this text, it's actually a twofold thing. One was the view of sin and sickness, especially in Jesus' day and time, and even in the generations prior to Christ, not just there in, in Palestine, in the Middle East, but even beyond that, the understandings that a lot of cultures had about sickness, any kind of ailment, was that most likely sin was the origin of such sickness. We know a lot more about modern medicine. We know a lot about germs today. So much medical research has taken place that we know that it is not sin that causes physical ailments. 
Now, we have to be careful. There may be some things that we encounter in life that are repercussions of some bad decisions we made at another stage in life. So maybe there was a little bit of sin involved in something that we've done that led us to have a broken arm, to be in an accident, so on and so forth, based upon our freedom of will and our bad choices. But God does not create individuals broken like this as trying to bring punishment on parents or to bring punishment upon certain individuals. When I look at the past several years, we've had a number of people within this congregation battling cancer. And a number of those men and women have gone on already to their eternal reward. And when I think about the quality of the character of those men and women... They were truly down-to-earth, salt-of-the-earth people who walked the Christian faith faithfully, day in, day out, no matter the situation. And so it's really hard for me to say, oh, maybe God is punishing him or her because of something they've done in the past. There's sin in his or her life, and so he or she now has cancer. That's not the way our God works. Often in life, we don't understand why, where these things come from. Just like the coronavirus that we're dealing with right now, this pandemic, there are a lot of people trying to explain things away and make sense of things. But the fact is, we don't know. But the great assurance is, we can hold on to the truth that God is faithful that God is with us, that he is truly a source of compassion and strength, peace and comfort we can lean upon to see us through the living of these days. Another thing that we could say about sickness in that day and time was the understanding that people had of that connection. The belief was that until one had really confessed or acknowledged his or her sins, there could not really be true healing. And not just spiritual healing, but also physical healing. Here the man came paralyzed, and Jesus started with what the people believed in that culture. The man needed reassurance of his forgiveness because of that mentality in the world that day and time. You need to be forgiven spiritually so that the physical healing might truly take effect. The physical healing would validate, if you will, the spiritual healing that Christ was doing in that particular moment. Jesus could have touched him and said, you're healed. But the fact that Jesus at this early stage in his ministry comes forward and says, son, your sins are forgiven, indicates that he had authority, just like he had authority over the demons of the previous chapter, the wind and the waves of the previous chapter. Here he has authority even over sin and sickness. One thing that we might draw from this is the fact that, yes, the physical needs, hurts, and challenges of our world are significant. They do take a toll on us in various ways, but we also must realize there is the spiritual that has the ability to destroy us from the inside out. 
So many times those broken bones can heal. There are surgical procedures that can take care of the heart, the kidneys, and so forth. But sin, we know there's not a doctor in this life. We can't go down to the local general practitioner and say, I've got sin in my life and I need forgiveness. Our doctor, he or she cannot prescribe that kind of forgiveness. It's Christ alone who is able to give us the forgiveness. And that's something that we need to think about. Even as we so often focus on the physical needs, the physical challenges, the physical hurts of life, we've also got to remember that God cares about us from a spiritual standpoint. And that there are actually things that are even stronger than the physical pains of this life that can be devastating to us individually, to our walk with Christ, our testimony before others, and can even be downright painful and devastating to other people when we fail to be obedient to God, when we decide that our way is better than God's way. Jesus having said the man's sins were forgiven, heard words of negativity. If you read Mark's account of this text, it tells us that these scribes thought certain things amongst themselves, to themselves, within themselves. But here they were bold enough, if you will, to mutter it between one another. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Does he think he's God in some way? Does he think he's better than God? This guy's just a normal, everyday human being. How dare he place himself at the same level as God? Now, I can't imagine trying to mutter something in front of the Son of God and think, I'm going to get away with that. I, I don't know about you, but it scares me because we know that God not only sees the things that we do, but he knows those hidden things inside, the things that we say when no one else is around, those things that we think to ourselves, those things that we maybe view on the Internet that we assume nobody will ever notice. We fail to realize that God sees right here. And Jesus saw in that particular moment, and he questioned the scribes, why are you feeling such evil within you? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? Jesus' very next movement is that of action. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Stand up, take your bed, and go home. Jesus didn't just pronounce the physical healing over this paralytic. He started with the spiritual, which led to the physical. And when the man got up and walked away, that was proof to those negative naysaying scribes that Jesus was legitimate in what he said and what he was doing with his life and his ministry. Of course, as that portion of the Scripture comes to a close, we find there are still many people who misunderstand Jesus. There are those who glorify God, and rightly so, because such a magnificent thing has happened. Healing and physical restoration has occurred. But I love the way it comes to the close there. The very end of verse 8, it says, They glorify God because God had given authority to human beings. 
It goes back to the question posed by the disciples when they were in the boat with Jesus. When the winds and the waves became calm and everything was good as new and they felt safe and comfortable once again, they pondered, they puzzled, they wrestled with just who this man Jesus was in their midst. Now we find that there are others who still view Jesus as being just an ordinary, everyday guy, and so they still have much to learn. There's still a lot to discover about just who this Jesus is. As we move into the next section, we find a text that's going to, again, it's going to draw attention to Jesus. It's going to draw the negative kind of attention. And we hear in verse 9 of Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew. Other gospel accounts identify him as Levi. But Matthew was sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And without any question, Matthew got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many assume this was the house of Matthew or Levi, many other tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, referring to Jesus, heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. The last person that anyone would have expected Jesus to give an invitation to would have been a first century tax collector. Tax collectors were somewhat crooked. They made a decent living because, well, they were able to get additional money. As long as Rome received their legitimate portion of the taxes, the tax collector could pretty much charge whatever he chose. And so he was able to pad his pocket, and Rome really didn't care anything about it. Basically, tax collecting in that day and time was done by bidding. And if you put in your bid, you were able to go out and request these taxes. And since documentation and information was no ways as accurate and accessible as it is in our world today, the average person had no idea the true amount of his or her taxes. All that individual knew that was when the tax collector came along, it was time to pay up. And you can read back on taxes during the first century. There were taxes for so many things, even the most unusual things you can imagine. But here was Matthew, a tax collector, and Jesus saw him not as a sinner, not as a scum-of-the-earth tax collector, but he saw him as an individual that Jesus came to save, that Jesus came to invite into God's kingdom. We don't know what it was about that moment. Maybe Matthew had some kind of dealings with Jesus already. 
Maybe he had heard a little bit about him. He knew his reputation. He was an amazing teacher, a miracle worker. Or maybe this was a first-time encounter, and there was just something about the very presence of Jesus that invited Matthew to come along in the journey. But it's only a matter of time, as we saw in the first part of chapter 9, before those negative naysayers come to the surface once again. What's amazing is the fact that the people who people overlooked in that day and time were often some of the most receptive to the work of God's kingdom. We looked at a passage similar to that in the last chapter where it talked about, I tell you the truth, there will be a banquet and many people will come to it, but there will be certain people who assume they should be invited that will be shut out. We kind of find that being the case here in this particular story. Jesus is received not by all of the religious elite of that day and time, but Matthew, most likely at his house, has invited Jesus and some other friends to come to share a meal to fellowship. And meals were very important in both the Old and New Testaments. Meals were locations of fellowship. They were a time to come together, to discuss, to dialogue, to debate. And maybe Matthew just wanted to introduce Jesus to some of his friends. Hey, here's a guy who truly cares about us. Here is someone who doesn't cast judgment upon us like all of the religious establishment. Here is someone who sees us where we are and for what we are in life. But as we often say of Jesus, Jesus doesn't simply discover us in certain places of life. Jesus comes to change our lives. Jesus comes to take us from where we are and the messed up situations of life and to clean us up, and to give us a fresh start and a different quality of life moving forward. But once again, the Pharisees were there, and of course, they did not ask the question of Jesus. They muttered it to the disciples, well, why does your teacher, why does your master hang out with all of the local riffraff, we might say? But once again, Jesus was observant. Even though they tried to slide that in and ask the question without Jesus really noticing anything, Jesus heard and he draws attention to his role as a physician. And as we've looked at already in this chapter, we've seen physical healing in conjunction with a spiritual healing. Once again, here Jesus emphasizes the spiritual dimension of healing and the fact that there are people in the world today who are receptive, who are willing to see the kingdom of God unfolding in the life and the work and the ministry of Jesus. It's those individuals, those people who already feel like they're religious enough, those people who are already so full of themselves and really can't see anybody else the way God sees them, they've, they've got an illness as well. But a lot of times those individuals don't have the kind of room that the lost sinner has. Sometimes the people that we write off, sisters and brothers, are the very people that have the space that God can come in and work and mold and reshape and do a magnificent work on their behalf. 
And to validate this aspect of Jesus' ministry, he pulled in the words of Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. I love how Jesus sets up that particular quote. Go and learn what this means. The religious elite of that day and time, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, their minds were pretty well made up when Jesus came onto the scene. He broke the molds. He dissolved all of their expectations. They had all of the things about the law pretty much down to a T. They understood what this passage said and that passage meant. But something they had overlooked in their study and memorization of God's Word, they had missed out on the merciful aspect. They had missed out on the fact that God doesn't simply want us to be righteous in the sense of knowing the law and being able to spout out information about God, but he wants us to have a true relationship with God. And a part of that relationship is how we treat other people. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they thought, well, as long as you believe the right things, you can pretty much treat other people any way you choose. But we do know that the very essence of the gospel is to love God with all of our existence and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what adds the credibility to our personal walk. We can talk the talk all day, but until we're able to see other people as a people in need, their hurts, their warts, their struggles, their disappointments in life, until we can see them as human beings whom Christ died for, then we truly miss the mark of what it means to be God's people. Verse 14 continues this theme of trying to make sense of and and clarify just who Jesus is. Verse 14 says... Then the disciples of John, referring to John the Baptist, came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth onto an old cloak, for the patch will pull away from the cloak, and the tear will be worse than before. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, And the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. John the Baptist's disciples, we forget that he had a following. In fact, that is something we were introduced to in the baptismal story. They're alluded to there in the baptismal story of Christ. 
But here we find them coming before Jesus because Jesus does things quite a bit different than John. And of course, we know the rest of the story. John the Baptist was the the leader, if you will, the precursor, the one preparing the way for Jesus to come into the world. And now we find Jesus has taken the forefront and John has slipped a little more into the background of the story. We don't hear all of that much about John the Baptist other than his birth in Luke, the baptism of Jesus, and then when he is arrested. And he's going to have his own questions of Jesus in the not-so-distant future following that arrest. These disciples are puzzling, why do you all not fast? Well, if you go back to the Sermon on the Mount, we know that fasting was something that was pretty important to Jesus. In fact, he drew attention to fasting, giving, and serving in the name of the kingdom and praying. And all of those things done in the right spirit were perceived as being items that brought glory and honor to God's name. They were what we would call in today's language spiritual disciplines or those practices that enable us to deepen and closen our walk with God. So here Jesus begins to talk yet again about fasting, but I don't want us to think that he's throwing fasting aside. Fasting was something that he certainly would have observed. It was something he advocated in previous chapters and something that he believed needed to be practiced in the right spirit, not in a showy way, but in a way that enabled someone to be drawn closer to God. Here, Jesus and his disciples are not doing the regular schedule. In fact, the Pharisees would have actually practiced weekly fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. We don't know the regularity with which John's disciples would have performed fasts, but these fasts were more than just the occasional one for a special holy day, a festival day for the Jewish people. Uh, uh, times of mourning and penance and sadness, those would be periodic in people's lives, and so they would engage in fast. So Jesus is kind of challenging this fast that the Pharisees have been practicing, the fact that they assume that if they fast so many days or fast more and better, we might say, than other people, that that can actually make them more righteous in the presence of God. But that's simply not the case. And what Jesus does do here is he pulls in an illustration from Isaiah 54. There's a passage there that speaks of the people of God as being God's bride. And it speaks of the bridegroom and the love that God had for God's people. Here Jesus pulls in that illustration from Scripture and refers to it in that moment to his ministry and his relationship with the disciples. What was happening now through the ministry of Jesus was the inbreaking, if you will, of God's kingdom. Something brand new was taking place in the world, something that was really shaking people up. And it was a reason to celebrate. It was a lot like a wedding ceremony where friends and family would get together in the days that followed the actual ceremony and they would feast and celebrate and enjoy life on behalf of that couple. But here Jesus says, right now is a time for 
feasting. It's a time for joy because I'm here. The kingdom of God is breaking into the world. Lives are being transformed. But a day is coming soon enough where there will be mourning, when there will be sadness. There you find what a lot of scholars would call a veiled reference to the crucifixion. It doesn't come out and tell us Jesus is going to be crucified. All of that is going to develop more as we get a little bit deeper into Matthew's gospel. But here, Jesus gives just a little snapshot that there will be a day of sadness for those who follow him. And from that, Jesus kind of shifts the subject matter, but at the same time, he kind of builds off of what he just said because there are those who obviously don't understand why Jesus doesn't simply do the same thing that everyone else does. Why does Jesus do this but not this? And how can Jesus do that and this? And So there's already this confusion developing. And what Jesus does in the last part of this section, he borrows from the illustration of a patch and a piece of clothing and putting wine into old skins or new skins. And there on your handout, you find a really good picture of a, an older style wine skin. Jesus here was kind of giving a little bit of a, a parable, a, a teaching of wisdom that would have been familiar to the people of that day and time to show them what God was doing in the world was shaking up people's expectations and that you could not take what God was doing through his son Jesus and simply stuff it into the old molds. Now, we've already talked about in Matthew how Jesus emphasized that he did not come to destroy anything. He did not come to erase anything from the law. He came to fulfill the law, or what that actually means to show people in visual form what it truly meant to be God's people, what it meant not just to know the law, but to truly live according to the law. And now Jesus' way of living that it just does not fit into the boxes, if you will, of that day and time. How many of us, if we're honest, have tried to put God into a box? Try as we may, work as hard as we want, God is too big to fit into these special compartments we create. But that's kind of what a lot of the Jewish religious leaders had done with God. They had tried to put God in a box during the Old Testament days, the times of the prophets, and the religious leaders had gone as far as building a fence, if you will, around the law in order to keep certain people in and certain people out of God's chosen people. But now Jesus has come onto the scene and he is breaking down the barriers. He's shaking up the rules a little bit and these people, these average Jews, some are seeing it and receiving it, but then some just do not understand. Jesus here is saying if we continue to do the same things that we've always been doing, assuming that there's going to be different results, then we've kind of missed the point. Here he says if you try to put God's grace and his love and his mercy, if you try to, to stuff all of that into the way you're trying to live out the law, then it's going to burst. It's going to, to pull away like a patch from a garment of clothing. It's simply not going to work. So even while Jesus was doing something new, 
He was building his new ministry off of what had already been laid down in the generations before. Verse 18 moves us back into a healing story. And it's what is common in Mark's gospel. It's an illustration of what a lot of scholars will call a a sandwich, if you will, in Mark's gospel. Here in Matthew, what we have is a miracle story inside of a miracle story. And you'll see where that comes from here in just a moment. Verse 18 says, While he was saying these things to them, again, as he was teaching, Suddenly a leader of the synagogue came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from an issue of blood, a flow of blood, my translation says hemorrhaging, for twelve long years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, If I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly, instantly, the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making such a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl got up, and the report of this spread throughout the district. You can see the reason that text is often referred to as a sandwich, the fact that the healing of a woman with a flow of blood is in the midst of Jesus going somewhere else to do something for someone else. This leader of the synagogue, ruler of the synagogue, basically an administrator, someone who was taking care of all of the the day-to-day preparations, the putting together of the synagogue, teaching services, if you will, came to Jesus. Now this is an example of someone who would have been a part of the religious establishment of that day and time, and he acknowledged that something was at work in Jesus. Something different was unfolding through, these, through the life, the teaching, the miracles that Jesus was performing here. And he came in a posture of humility and placed himself at the mercy of Jesus, help because my daughter is dead. This is going to be the first illustration in this gospel of Jesus raising someone from the dead. We ultimately anticipate his resurrection later on in Matthew's gospel, but now we're finding that Jesus not only has authority over sins and sickness and the wind and the waves, but he has power even over death. And so Jesus, with no questions asked, followed... And along the way, we find this woman who had this flow of blood, this blood condition that had been causing such difficulties for a prolonged period of time. And that could be any number of ailments, but I'll tell you one thing, it was more than just physical. 
it was very similar to what we talked about last week with the leper and how the leper was basically an outcast within his or her own society. He or she was essentially ostracized from all of the other happenings of public life. The same would have been true for this woman for 12 lengthy years. And we learn throughout history and reading traditions of the culture of that time, there were a lot of recommendations for what to do if you had a flow of blood. If you were dealing with feminine problems, if you were having this issue, you could try different tonics, different astringents. You could even do things that a lot of people would consider superstition. Uh, one illustration that I've seen in a number of sources says, carry around the ashes of an ostrich egg in a piece of cloth, linen for this season, cotton for this season. Again, it was a superstition to take something, carry it around with you, and hopefully that would bring about a cure to this particular ailment. Now, when we read Mark's account of the same story, we learn there that this woman had exhausted all of her resources, her personal means of living, going from doctor to doctor and source to source, trying desperately to obtain healing from this condition because this condition according to the law and you can read a lot about it in Luke or excuse me in Leviticus chapter 15 about what should happen if a woman has a flow of blood and how if a woman has that condition she essentially makes everybody else or everything she touches unclean but just as the leper crept in in the midst of the crowd to experience Jesus, here was a woman thinking, here's my last chance. I still have a shot. Let me get close to Jesus, and if I can simply touch a portion of his garment, then I know without a doubt that I can be healed and made whole once again. The word that's used there to refer to what the woman touches. Some translations will say the hem of his garment. Some will say the, the tassels of the garment. The, the tassels there or the fringe, you find that alluded to in Numbers chapter 15 and Deuteronomy chapter 22. The Jews had four tassels that would be hung at various points around the base of the garment. And those four tassels or fringes, the law tells us, gave the Jewish people a visual aid, a visual reminder. When they saw those tassels, when they looked down, it reminded them, one, that they were a Jew. It identified a Jew as truly being amongst the Jewish people. But more importantly than that, it reminded the Jewish people that they were specifically a people of God. It is that tassel that was hanging down that most likely this woman touched. And we find in the other stories that Jesus felt power or virtue to leave him in that moment. He knew that someone had touched him. He knew that something had happened, even as he was being bumped around by the rest of the crowds following him to go to the synagogue ruler's house. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have probably been a little bit nervous if Jesus had turned and looked at me at this point. Probably if Jesus turned and looked at me for any reason at all, but if I had just reached out and touched his garment... 
And everything suddenly stopped, and Jesus looked and said, Go. Your faith has healed you, daughter. It's a beautiful image. I just get that picture of time standing still, and the only two people in the moment that really matter are Jesus and that woman. And as she looks at Jesus and she feels not only physically different, she hears those words that affirm her as a child of God. It says it's your faith. It's not anything about the tassels. It's the fact that in your heart of hearts, you truly believed in me. You touched me. The healing and restoration has occurred. And I love that word, daughter. Because where is Jesus on the way now? Jesus, in this story, is already heading to raise a young daughter, a small child perhaps, And here we have this most likely middle-aged or older woman who he refers to as daughter. It's a, a tale, as I put there in the handout, a tale of two daughters, if you will. Jesus continues on, even though the scene has been interrupted just a little bit, he goes on to the leader's house. And of course, when he arrives, there's already chaos and confusion. It's quite obvious this girl is dead as dead can be because they have already brought in professional mourners or wailers. That was something very common in the first century, to have people to come, and they could cry out and wail over the deceased body. They could help you along in the grieving process. And not only do you have people who are weeping and wailing, we have flute players as well. So there is all kinds of chaos going on once Jesus arrived at that particular house. And the fact that he went in and said, this girl is not dead She is sleeping. Oh, that just drew nothing but laughter and ridicule from the people assembled. What kind of fool is this? This girl is dead as can be. How can he use this reference to sleep? But it's important to realize in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, that sleep was often a metaphor, a symbolic reference to someone once they were deceased. In fact, when we think about in John chapter 11, when Jesus goes to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus to perform his healing, that language of he is sick, we must go to him, he is sleeping, the disciples presume that he is talking about, well, if he sleeps, if he gets some good rest, then maybe he'll heal up on his own, but the reference there was to that death. So death had come to the house of this religious leader. The people laughed, but here Jesus reaches his hand down and with a touch raises her to new life. It says there at that portion of the story that this report spread throughout the district. I don't know about you, but it would be hard to keep all of that self-contained, wouldn't it? It would be difficult to simply say, well, nothing really happened, but the fact that death has been overcome by Jesus in that given moment was pretty powerful. And that's something that we think about in light of the death and the most important resurrection, that of Jesus, that we find ultimate healing. 
that we find in the presence of Jesus Christ, death doesn't stand a chance. Now, don't get me wrong. People die in this life. People leave this world every second of every single day for various reasons. But when we put death in the perspective of what God accomplished through Jesus on the cross, as Paul wrote, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And when we think about COVID-19, where is its victory? Where is its sting? Sickness, death, the trials, the tragedies of this life do not have the final word in the presence of our risen Savior and Lord. Well, sisters and brothers, I've been with you for almost an hour this afternoon, and I appreciate your time and for your willingness to tune in. Please do so again next week as we'll wrap up our study of chapter 9 of Matthew and move into chapter 10. I'll let you know as soon as we have the time for the streaming and recording ironed out. We'll be sure to put that online on our phone tree, emails. We'll get that word around to you all who tune in. And please help spread the word. If you're not able to view this service online, we do have it recording. And we will make that available through the church website a little bit later in the day if you'd like to go back and revisit it or even share this study, this information with others. If you would like copies of the handouts, you can go to littlerockchurch.net, and there is a link there for our Bible study handouts. You can also text me, call me, Facebook me, email me, and I can get a copy of those materials to you all as well. As I've also been sharing with many people here in the last couple of weeks, we do have the capabilities to make DVD recordings of our services, and we would be glad to mail those out wherever they might be needed to some who maybe don't have internet access, but they do have the capabilities of viewing DVDs. As we prepare to depart this afternoon, may I send you forth with this word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the beauty of these stories. Lord, we know that in our world today, there are decisions constantly being made about who Jesus is really is. There are some who view your son as being just a mere human being. But for those of us who have truly experienced what Christ came to accomplish on our behalfs, we know that Christ is more than just any ordinary man. He is your son. He is the savior of this world. He is the source of peace and hope and strength and comfort that we need right here and right now as we go through this pandemic. Lord, I ask for your hand of blessing to be with all of my brothers and sisters the remainder of this day. And as we go through the days to come, you know all of the needs that are close to their hearts and their families. Give them strength, Lord. Give them the reassurance that you will see them through whatever comes their way in this journey of faith and life. In Jesus' name, we lift this prayer. And together, God's people said, Amen and Amen.